to our seats and we'll, we'll begin with prayer here this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. We thank you for the communion of the saints, Lord, that we can gather together all because of the shed blood of your Son, that we have forgiveness of sins and we have the absolute assurance of everlasting life. Lord, we pray that as we look at Proverbs 6 and the relevant New Testament passages, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom as to how to live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to do a little review of where we left off last time. We are in Proverbs chapter 6. Now, I think by next week we should be done with Proverbs chapter 6 if we get through the next section on time. And then we'll be obviously into Proverbs number 7. So we'll do that. And remember I had mentioned when we get through Proverbs 31, which is the end of the book, we'll be going on from there to the book of Zechariah. So for now I'm excited to continue on here in the book of Proverbs. And we're talking about, recall, these four teachings in this section. So I'll do a little bit of a review, and then we'll come to where we had left off last time. So remember, there's four sections, and they're connected not thematically, but through the connection of these words that are key words that are identical. So for example, remember we saw the warning about entering into contractual agreements and co-signing, for example, maybe a loan or maybe even a legal note for someone else. That was in Proverbs 6, 1 through 5. Don't slumber, Solomon says to his son. I'll put up my pointer here. Don't slumber until you're free from the contractual commitments. Why? Well, because if you have the person that you sign for not abide by the contract, then you're on the hook for it. And that's what Solomon is warning about. So remember the term slumber there, tunama, in Hebrew connects to the too much slumber in verses 6 through 11 leading to poverty. And that's the warning against slothfulness. And this section is very important because it helps build a work ethic that indeed human beings made in the image of God must be those who till the ground, who work hard in the labor of their hands and their minds in order to provide for themselves and their family. And we'll talk about that from some New Testament teaching later on here today. Then we got to Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 15. We saw the wicked man stirs up dissension. Remember, the term stir up dissension is literally shalah, to stir up or to spread, and madan is dissension. So this is someone who spreads dissension. It is a person who divides brothers and sisters for their own personal gain. Not because they're contending for the truth, but because it, in fact, benefits them personally. A good example of that today, I think we mentioned it last week, is Marxism. Marxists are deliberately trying to divide people along the lines of race, class, gender to benefit their political movement. That would be one example of many of the dissensions that Proverbs and the Scriptures warn us about. So a very apropos passage for what we see in the culture today. Now remember, the term dissension then is the key word that connects us to the next section. And that's where we left off last time where you talked about these seven sins uh, Solomon did. And the last of the seven sins that God hates is Madan, the, the dissension. And again, this dissension would be the breaking up of the fellowship of brothers and sisters. And it would be not because of 
some truth claim or contending for some scriptural truth, but merely, again, for personal gain, just as it was in the previous section. So with that, let me come to the last slide that we left off on, and that was the seven sins. And I know we did read this and we covered some of it, but let's reiterate it. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, the section concludes with Proverbs saying this. It says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, notice here in the, in the list of the seven here, the first one that he hates, the Lord, is the, the haughty eyes. The haughty eyes there is a reference to arrogance. The Lord hates arrogant people because by definition, arrogance is opposed to trust in him who not only sustains but also saves. And so the arrogant are those who are enemies of God who stand, attempt to stand by works rather than grace. And we see this idea, for example, in Proverbs 16, verse 18, where it said pride goes before the fall. Pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before stumbling. So what's interesting is in the scriptures, if you and I are to have pride, it is to be in the Lord, in what he has done and who he is. Remember, the gospel is about who Christ is and what he has done. That is precisely where our pride should be that God gets all the glory. Remember, one of the solas of the Reformation is to the glory of God alone. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, all by God's grace alone, revealed in the Scriptures alone, all to the glory of God alone. And so he gets all the glory, and that's why Paul is very clear in 2 Corinthians 10, as he cites from Jeremiah 9, that he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 1017. Now, notice next to that is the lying tongue. God, who is the author of all truth, is always opposed to the lie. The lie, of course, is that which is contrary to reality. Um, one thing that we have jettisoned in our postmodern age is what we would call in epistemology the foundation for truth, which is the correspondence theory of truth. I've mentioned this numerous times, but it's a slight shift. It's not a slight shift. I should say it's a major shift, but that hasn't been noticed by most people in our culture. And the shift is this. The way evangelicals used to think and the epistemology, does everyone know what I mean by epistemology? Epistemology has to do with the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? That's the study of epistemology. What you had seen in the 20th, at the end of the 20th century into the 21st century, is America shifted its epistemology to being that of the Europeans. In the 1900s into the 21st century now, the European continent was dedicated to something that Bob has pointed out numerous times. It's called coherentism. Coherentism is an epistemology where something is true if it coheres with the rest of the ideas that people have in a corporate world about such a thing. So something is true if we all agree on it. 
if 95% of the people say the Vikings actually won four Super Bowls, well, then that's true for us. Now, in reality, we actually lost four Super Bowls. Are you with me? So do you see then you have all of a sudden an epistemology that's disconnected from reality? What we as evangelicals in America held on to was what was called the correspondence theory of truth. Something is true if it corresponds to reality. I got to cite this when I was asked a question on a jury trial not too long ago. The defense counsel asked me if I believed in the Me Too movement, which is, remember, that's when they started slandering Brett Kavanaugh. You have to believe witnesses against Brett Kavanaugh even though they're not credible. And so I cited, I said, well, I believe people, whether they're men or women, if what they say corresponds to the facts and to reality. So my point in saying that is that's exactly the significance of the lying tongue. The lying tongue is one that misrepresents reality. That's precisely what Satan did in the garden. In the garden, Satan said, you won't die. God said you would die. Our postmodern generation says, well, you can't know. You can't know. And if 95% of everyone thinks you won't die, well, then you won't die. Whether that's reality or not, it doesn't matter because they gave up on knowing reality. That's the problem that you have in your society. You're amongst people that are claiming that they can't know. That's why Bob said of our favorite bad theologian, Brian McLaren, he called him the little engine that can't. I think I can't, I think I can't, I think I can't, because they can never come to the knowledge of the truth. Remember, always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oops, I've got a little reminder here for my computer. Hold on one second. I have to hit remind me tomorrow. There we go. Now, think about the original lie. What was the original lie? That you will be like God, you won't die, and you'll be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. From buying into that lie, what happened to humanity? We were excluded from the garden. We were excluded from the tree of life. Why? Lest we live forever in opposition to God. We were excluded from the tree of life. What happens in Revelation chapter 22 for only believers in Christ in the New Jerusalem is we have access back to what? The tree of life. What we lost by our works and our failure God, by his grace, gives back. But the lying tongue is one that deceives people by distorting reality. And therefore, if you have a lying tongue, you are standing in solidarity with Satan himself, who was a murderer from the beginning. That's how critical it is to represent the truth rather than the lie. Notice also added to this is the shedding of innocent blood. I mentioned last time, the whole role of government is to restrain evil. It's not just an old covenant concept, it is also a new covenant concept. Think about the old covenant, Genesis 9-6. The institution of government is given in that passage where God says, if a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. Notice he doesn't say, so by an angel, his blood will be shed, or by me, his blood will be shed. No, God used to protect directly. Remember, he put a mark on Cain. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. But now, during this age in which God isn't walking with us in the garden, it's humans that have to protect 
other humans. And so government has been ordained, designed, commanded by God to put murderers to death. How many heard of this murderer that's on the loose? How many heard that just recently? Where, where was he from? Does anybody remember? I kept trying to hear where he had escaped, but it's somewhere in the United States. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. There you go. That is right, Bob. I remember that now. Pennsylvania. And so I'm driving with my son, Will. We're driving, and I said, why, if the government was run by people who had a biblical worldview, would this man not be out of jail, escaped, and the police looking for him? And Will's sitting there driving. He says, well, I think it's because murder should be put to death. Bingo! Bingo! You don't have to find the murderer who's been put to death. And so, therefore, the murderer can't shed the blood of other innocent human beings. It protects human beings made in the image of God. By the way, this is not simply an old covenant command. We see it in the new covenant. The apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 4, that the government does not bear the sword in vain. Why does that matter, that statement that Paul makes? When he says they don't bear it in vain, it means they can use it. That's the point. Why? Because they are designed to restrain evil. The problem, of course, in history is when instead of restraining evil, government starts to commit evil. That's a problem. But yes, the shedding of innocent blood is something that we should abhor. And I thank God for so many of you here today that are involved with Amnion, helping these innocent babies survive and helping the mothers hear the gospel. Praise God for that. Notice also it's a heart that devises wicked plans. Notice it adds to this the feet that run rapidly to evil. There are some human beings that can't wait to fill up the evil pleasures of their heart. And this would be any sort of rebellion in which the word of God is jettisoned for the personal lust of the human being. Uh, Notice, yes, Brian. Back to the death penalty, the pushback on that Eric is yeah. people say, well, what about all the people that uh, through different organizations have uh, 20 years down the road while they're wasted all their appeals and cost the taxpayers hundreds of thousands of dollars, they end up being found that it wasn't them through DNA testing after the fact. That's yeah. the pushback. What do you say to that? Yeah, that, that's an issue if you've got to get it right. right? So that, that's not... The Lord's concern would obviously have to do with real murders. So it's suggesting the ideal. If a man sheds a man's blood, so by man shall his blood be shed. It ties in very nicely with the false witness who utters lies or the lying tongue. This is why it's so important that every fact would be established by two or three witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. And if those witnesses lie, they are to undergo the same penalty that they were trying to frame the person that they had wrongly accused. And so think about if that were held today. Uh, how many false witnesses would you really have if they really did suffer the same penalty that you have of the person that they're accusing, right? Um, I can think of some dandy examples. Um, just one that comes to my mind. Think of the current accusation against the President of the United States where he's engaged with a conspiracy to overthrow the government. And so they're trying to go after him with a RICO statute. But Fannie Willis, the very one who's accusing him, was engaged in a conspiracy 
to overturn the election. Now, you don't have to wonder about this. You could see it on TV, in which, do you remember the story in Fulton County where they're counting the votes? The story was we had a water main break. Remember the water main break? Well, then, all of a sudden, on camera, after the poll watchers go home, the Republican poll watchers go home, by the way, that's illegal because you can't count ballots unless you have bipartisan poll watchers according to Georgia state law. Now, according to the Constitution of the United States, who, what entity in government is responsible for election law for national elections? State legislatures. So is it legal to send the poll watchers home after you pretend that there's been a water main break? No. And that would look like something called a conspiracy. And then when you on camera take out ballots from underneath the desk and start counting them, and all of a sudden you have 38,000 uninterrupted votes for Joe Biden in zero for Donald Trump after your fake water main. Was there a water main break? No. And we know that. And then someone said, well, maybe it was a leaky toilet. This is called a conspiracy. Okay, so the one who is charging the president with a conspiracy has themselves committed a conspiracy. The irony, of course, is very rich. But my point in saying that is that's why witnesses matter. We saw it in the Brett Kavanaugh case. We saw Brett Kavanaugh was wrongly accused. And we know it was, he was wrongly accused of his deeds because the very witness that Professor Ford had used said it never happened. So Professor Ford got to bring her own witnesses. Her own witness said that never happened, and yet we're to believe her. So the false witnesses have done grave damage that we've seen in our own culture, people that are bearing false witness. Now, one thing I want to talk about, too, with the false witness, and I'll talk about this later, is the idea of bearing God's name in vain. This is part of the third commandment, that we shall not bear the Lord's name in vain. When we swear an oath, you'll hear oftentimes people will say, I swear to God that this is true. The same thing happened in ancient Israel. And if you swore to the truth by God's name and yet you bore false witness or a false statement, it was misrepresenting the very character of God because he's a God who cannot lie. So that's all wrapped in there as well. Notice also the one who spreads strife among brothers. And this is where we want to focus on for just a moment and we'll come back to this. The focusing here on the spreading of strife is important because we have to wrestle with this as Christians. When do you and I contend for the faith? And when do you and I say, well, no, that's strife. That's needless dissension among brothers and sisters. Well, as I'm going to show you, the spreading of strife in this text is about people for personal gain that are trying to divide other human beings only for their personal gain. This isn't someone who's contending for the truth of God's scripture. So if you're contending for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints as you're commanded to do in Jude 3, you are not engaged in this type of spreading of strife. In fact, I want you to listen to what Dwayne Garrett, he's a great scholar in the book of Proverbs, listen to what he says about the false witness and the one who spreads strife. He says, these two figures, this is him now, Dwayne Garrett, quote, these two figures are fundamentally antisocial in that they break bonds of friendship, promote the decay of public justice, 
and ultimately bring a community into chaos, unquote. Boy, that sounds a lot like what we see going on in our culture through false witnesses and those who are dividing between race, class, and gender. We see the same thing happening in our day. Okay. Um, does anybody remember the names Cloward and Piven? I think I'm getting those names correct. These are professors from the 1960s. Well, they had devised a scheme in the 60s in their writings that because Americans were not dividing between the haves and the have-nots according to the worker and according to the management. Remember, originally Marxism broke everything between the management class, the bourgeoisie, and the worker, the proletariat. Bourgeoisie are the haves. The proletariat are the have-nots. The haves and the have-nots. And so the goal in Marxism, remember, Karl Marx is a follower of that famous philosopher, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel believes that in history, God is drawing all things into himself. He's a panentheist. And the final display of that is the government. The fullest expression of God in the world to Hegel was government. Marx latches onto that, and he says that the ultimate goal of government to create this utopia is to take from the haves and give to the have-nots until we have this utopian perfection. Well, in the 1930s, people realized that the American workers and the American owners of the companies, they got along too well. There was a benefit that they both accrued. In other words, the workers were getting wealthy and they were doing well and so was the management. Well, what happened is the 1960s, Cloward and Piven said, we have to make an artificial divide and we're gonna add to it race and we're gonna add to it gender. So no longer is the divide between the worker and the management, we're gonna create the artificial divide and spread strife between people according to their race and their gender. And that's why there's been such a huge push about racism today. Uh, today, racism doesn't mean that you hate someone merely because of their race. It means you don't agree with Marxist dogma. And so we're seeing this today in our day and age, that there is a spreading of strife for personal gain. It is directly apropos to our culture today. Yes, Brian. Well, this verse says strife among brothers. So yes. aren't we talking about the body? You so know, it's what interesting. Does what does yeah. that look like within, within you know, the body? Certainly in New Testament language, the brothers yeah. would be the new covenant community. In other words, it would be believers in Jesus Christ. Here it may be more generic for simply just your neighbor. Um, remember, they're not using the terminology in Solomon's day in a one-to-one -one correspondence as we use it in the New Testament. But recall that as Solomon writes this, he's talking about people who are part of the covenant community, as it were, because they're living in Israel. They're just in an, the old covenant. So my point in saying that is brothers doesn't mean necessarily a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't necessarily have that connotation, but it does have the connotation of a believer, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, not a believer, but a, a person who is under the Mosaic covenant. Okay, so... For example, you could be an unbeliever under the Mosaic Covenant, and you could be abiding by all their laws, stipulations, regulations, yet your heart is far from God. You're not justified by faith. The only way you can be a brother or sister, as Bob is showing us, in the church is through having faith alone in Christ alone. So brothers may be just more generic with neighbor. 
here. Does that make sense? Yeah. Simply because of the difference in the covenant. Absolutely. Well, let's go on here. I want to talk about the New Testament and how the New Testament handles these various issues. And I want to talk about this work ethic. Remember earlier in our four teachings, there was this command to develop a work ethic and not to be like the sluggard who says, well, a little bit more rest is all I need and I'll be just fine. No, you and I are to develop a robust work ethic. Now, a little bit of a word of caution as we come into the New Testament here. The New Testament is not a book on how to get rich or how to succeed in business. It is a book about salvation and being spared from the wrath of God. As I say that, however, the Bible in both the Old and the New Covenant, it does give wisdom as to how we should live in this world so that you and I will not dishonor God's name, nor that you and I would somehow sully our own name or put ourselves at risk to being tempted to sin beyond our control. Okay, so that's why it gives us wisdom. And I want to talk about some of the wisdom that it does give us. First of all, the New Testament on contracts says, honor your word. And it also says, don't make vows or oaths if possible. And again, I'm, I'm connecting this to Proverbs where Solomon is telling his son, as quickly as you can, get out of the contract in which you co-sign for another human being. He said, remember, do it as speedy as a gazelle. How fast you, should you get out of a contract where you sign the agreement for someone else? You should do it as fast as a gazelle, Solomon says. Well, that's what I'm building off of. In the New Testament, we learn some other things. That number one, we should honor our word. If we say we're going to pay something off, we do. And we don't make vows or oaths if possible. Okay, now... Let me uh, bring up a passage that talks about this. Remember, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. He says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vow to the Lord. Now, stop there for a moment. That's a citation that's blended between Leviticus 19, 12 and Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. And so what he's pointing out is that the ancients, that is the Israelites, heard this because God gave it to Moses. But what Jesus wants to do now as the mediator of the new covenant is that he is not, in fact, just abolishing this, but rather he's making it even more stringent in the sense that we shouldn't make oaths at all. Notice he says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem. Now, let's stop there. Notice this oath-taking by heaven or the throne of God. What was that all about? Well, some Israelites didn't want to take God's name outright because they knew if they didn't live up to their obligation, they were guilty of violating, what, the third commandment. You shall not take upon the Lord's name in vain. That was the command. In other words, you shall not take it up on your mouth or upon your person and live in such a way that you bring disrepute upon Yahweh's name. If you sign an oath and you say, I swear by God's name, I'm going to pay it back, and then you don't pay it back, you've used the Lord's name in vain. So a way to get around that is some Israelites said, well, I won't actually use God's name. I'll swear by heaven. And notice Jesus says, well, that's a non-starter because that's the throne of God. Well, some would say, well, okay, well, I won't go by heaven, I'll use the earth. Well, he says, well, the earth is the footstool of his feet. Well, some would say, well, I'll swear by Jerusalem. Well, 
Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Okay, so what Jesus is pointing out is, no, there's no way of getting around it. If you swear an oath, you're on the hook for it. Because you, as the very Israelite, remember at the time, these are Israelites, they bore God's name. That's the point of Daniel chapter 9. Do you remember in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel cries out, Oh Lord, we have sinned and rebelled and we've profaned your name. How did they do it? Well, didn't he command that their farmland should remain fallow every seven years? Did they do that? No. Why? Because they didn't believe. If you don't believe, you don't obey. It's that simple. So someone would say, well, why is it such a big deal their farmland didn't remain fallow? Because God commanded it. If you don't believe, you don't obey. And so Daniel has to cry out that we have profaned your name. We have literally borne it in vain. The Israelites, the point is in Daniel 9, the issue isn't them swearing. It's not them using God's name as a cuss word. It is them living no different than the pagans. They bore the name of the Lord in vain. And so what I'm claiming to you is that you can't claim, well, I didn't cuss and use the Lord's name, and therefore I'm not guilty of violating the third commandment. If you live like a pagan, if you live in unbelief, you're taking the Lord's name in vain every day. That's the idea. That's the point of the... the, So that's why Jesus is so adamant that you and I would not engage in oath-taking because we're fallible human beings. So notice he continues on, verse 36, he says, Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. In other words, just be people of your word. Uh, Yes, Ron. If you remember the promise keepers, getting back to the old, yes. do, do you think that fits in here? You know, raise your hand and promise the seven promises of the promise keepers. Speak to that. I do, absolutely. In fact, Bob, you wrote some CIC articles about that, I believe, years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Bob. I think what we claimed was uh, the only promise. God is the promise keeper. <laughs> exactly. Promises. Can't trust humans to do so. Right, so the promise keeper is God, not us. So absolutely, we should just let our yes be yes and our no be no. To follow what Jesus is commanding here, we should not take oaths unless absolutely compelled to. For example, if you're on the, uh, in the jury pool, or what do you call it, on the, the hot seat when you're the witness stand, and they say, do you swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, there's an oath that we're probably going to be bound to. Okay, well then tell the truth. But other than that, we should really not make oaths in and of ourselves. And I think you're exactly right. The problem is, is that we're fallible. So not, we're not to set ourselves up for failure. Yes, Marilyn. Would you please address... Oops, hold on. We'll get you on tape here. I know I could ask my husband this question, but <laughs> um, would you address as far as vows for marriage concerns? I know 54 years ago, yeah. I thought I made a vow, and actually, I think that kept my marriage <laughs> at one point. Yeah, you know, um, good question, Marilyn. Marriage in and of itself is an oath, and it's an oath recognized by God that the two shall come together and covenant together, literally, davake. They should become one flesh. 
Uh, remember, Jesus says, therefore, what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. That is an oath, in a sense, that's recognized by God. God ordained marriage. And when you come together, you are making an oath, by definition, to become one flesh and therefore be joined only to one another. Absolutely. So that would be another one in which, yes, if I'm going to be married, by definition, that's an oath. But the point that Jesus is making is the frivolous oaths that so many make where they swear to this and I'm going to do this and I swear by God's name, stop doing that. Or even enter into frivolous contracts where you sign your name to things claiming that you're promising to do something. No, let's just limit it. And in fact, I think you've just brought up the two that I can think of that were probably, and you, may, you also may say a loan. You may have to take out a loan. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. That you and I are not forbidden from taking out loans, but we should be people that honor the terms of the loan. So absolutely, um, that would be a vow, but one that's necessary because by definition, marriage is an oath between one man, one woman, and between God. Absolutely. Yeah. Eric, one more thing. Yeah, Rich. It, just an interesting side note. This whole oath thing is really amazing. Before I understood the gospel of Christ, I grew up in a, in a Baptist church, and how we got saved back in the Baptist church back in the day yeah. is we would go forward and make a commitment to the Lord. And we would say, oh, I make a commitment. I, I, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I, I am determined to accept you. I accept Jesus Christ, and I make a commitment to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And then somebody will say, well, did you really mean it? Well, did you really, 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 really mean it? Right. And it's like, oh, I really, really, really meant it. Well, then you're saved. You're saved. Could this be a part of the oath-taking, that the false idea of salvation is about my commitment, not about faith in Christ? Well, I guess it is kind of faith in Christ, but it's about me and my determination. to. And then if I backslide, what do I do? I go forward again and I recommit my life to the Lord. So it's a redouble commitment. I double down on my commitment. I think you're right. Absolutely. I think that there is a, a point in which, because of quote-unquote decision theology, some of the evangelistic calls that we've seen are really calling people to make an oath, right? Now, do are g people genuinely saved, for example, at a Billy Graham meeting where decision theology is present? Absolutely. There are people who genuinely come to saving faith, but it's despite the call to make the decision and the commitment. It's despite that, not because of it. So when the word of God is present and there's a call to believe and repent, people adhere to that, even if it's given by people who have other wayward theology. Does that make sense? So my point in saying that is that there are people who are genuinely saved when they come forward, but it is that call it's not a call simply to believe the gospel. It's a call to do something, to make a commitment. And that commitment then means that we are committing ourselves to do something in which I really think uh, really diffuses what the issue is. The issue in saving faith is where my trust is in the finished work of the person and work of Christ, that he did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And when we unpack the rest of the New Testament and we see that that ability to believe is even given to me as a gift by God, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, um, John 6, 44. Uh, we saw it in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25. Remember, Bob had it up on the screen last week. Uh, we should correct in gentleness. Those who are in opposition, perhaps God may what? 
may grant them repentance. If we were capable of repenting on our own, why does God have to grant it? Well, because we're not able to come on our own and repent. So absolutely, if we confuse those issues, all of a sudden salvation becomes a work that I do, my commitment to Jesus Christ, and it's much then like an oath. If a person comes forward genuinely trusting in the person and work of Christ, then it's genuine faith. But if it's about what their commitment is and what they will do for the Lord, then it's an oath. And so it's a good way of describing the difference between justification by faith alone and a vain oath. Are you trusting in the finished work of Christ? Is the gospel about what Christ did for me or about what I do for Christ? Yeah. Make it that simple. Or does faith get convoluted? Yeah. Does faith in Jesus Christ, do I have my faith in Christ or is my faith in myself? In exactly. I didn't even got the date written down in my Bible. <laughs> sure. So I believe that I really made that commitment. So where is my faith? Yeah, amen. Um, and again, when we do believe, we really do obey. But we're justified completely by the faith. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice justification comes first, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It's by faith, all by God's grace. And then the works are something that we do that God has prepared beforehand. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the justification is by faith alone. Absolutely. And if we make it about us and what we're going to do, then it, it could be very well no different than an oath. Yes, Eric. Yeah, actually, this is interesting because what Marilyn brought up as well as Rich. I'm sorry. Did somebody say something? Oh. Okay. Um, you know, marriage is ordained by God. And so we can take that oath or, or make that commitment or covenant relationship, and it's only through the strength of God that we can keep it. That's why Amen. unbelievers are in big trouble when they get married, and so many of them, uh, marriages end. And also among supposed believers, my opinion is that a lot of these people are fake believers going to fake churches. They're not really in Christ and a lot of the professing Christians have just as much of a divorce rate, I guess. But it's, I, I think the difference here is that we're commanded by God, you know, to honor that marriage commitment. And it's yeah. only through God's grace and the Amen. Holy Spirit that we can keep it. And then on the salvation, you know, we, we have to come to, to faith on God's terms, and it's all through his work. And so right. when we artificially make up, oh, we're all going to make a promise, you know, God does not honor that, and, and we see that. So, um, I, Eric, I think you're exactly right. I think the idea is that it's a necessary oath. By definition, marriage is an oath between two human beings yeah. in order to become one flesh. Right, and it's and only, uh, yeah, only through yep. God's, uh, uh, through the Holy Spirit that we can keep that. So, Amen. Well said. Yeah. And so you're right. I think what Jesus is prohibiting here is obviously the frivolous oaths that people so often undertake. There are some times where if I'm on the witness stand, I'm going to have to take the oath to tell the truth, and I should tell the truth. In my marriage, I'm, I have an oath to my wife, and I should keep that. But beyond that, I can't think of an example where uh, maybe as a soldier, you take an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. What I'm saying, though, is I think Jesus' prohibition is against the willy-nilly oath, the, the promise-keeper kind of idea that Ron was bringing up, where I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Uh, do you remember the old commercial? 
where the guy, for, it was a Gwendolyn ad, it was some ad agency. He picks up the phone, yeah, I can do that. He picks up the phone, yeah, I can do that. He picks up the phone, yeah, I can do that. And all of a sudden he looks at the camera and goes, how am I going to do that? Right? That's the way we are. We sign ourselves up for things that we can't do. And that's the problem because we're fallible human beings. And so that's what Jesus is calling us to. And I think that that's exactly what is behind Proverbs 6, where Solomon is warning, don't sign on to someone else's loan because they're a fallible human being. It's the same idea, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, was there another hand? My, my body, no, no, my mind writes checks, my body can't. <laughs> top Gun. Yeah. Yes, very good. <laughs> Even in Top Gun, there could be some good theology right now. Yeah, no, that's funny. That one part, yeah. Very good. Okay. Um, oh, the one thing I want to do is concept three here, and that is to pay your debts. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 13, 8. We have to be people who pay our debts. And one place where we see this is in Romans 13, 8. Again, Romans chapter 13, verse 8. And this is a good concept that we should give to our kids about financial responsibility is right here in Romans 13.8. Romans 13.8, notice Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, I'm going to say to a scholar named Douglas Moo, and I'm just citing this so that you realize this isn't just my idea, but you also have very good scholars. I think Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner have the best commentaries uh, right now anywhere on the book of Romans. They're excellent. Douglas Moo says this. He says, This command does not forbid a Christian from ever incurring debt, example, to buy a house or a car, but rather it demands that Christians repay any debts they do incur promptly and in accordance with the terms of the contract. What's the point? We should pay our debts. Why? Let's, lead it, let's get it back to Matthew 5.37. We got to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If I made an agreement that I'm going to pay off a certain amount by a certain time, I have to live up to that. That's the idea. Okay? So the point is we are those who don't live in huge amounts of debt. The only thing that we are to owe is what? We are to owe others love. In fact, it goes on to say in verse 10, love does no wrong to the neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So we owe love to other human beings but we don't want to owe them money. And so we should be those who are quick to pay our debts, to live as debt-free as possible, and to always live up to the terms of our agreement. The reason we should live debt-free is so that we don't fail to live up to our yes being yes and our no being no, that we live up to our word. That's the idea. Well, for the sake of time, let me move on to the New Testament work ethic. I see four tenets in the New Testament. Number one, do all your work as unto the Lord. In other words, remember, we saw the idea in Proverbs 6 that we should not be like the sluggard, but we should be like the ant. Proverbs 6 is very important in building a work ethic for the people of God. But we also see this under the new covenant. What I'm claiming is that you and I, the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ, you and I are bound by the terms of the new covenant. So I'm going to show you continuity here with the new covenant, what we can learn. One thing is we should do all our work as unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, Paul says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So even if you're a slave, even if you're, you feel like you're a slave, you're mistreated at work, and work is nothing but dreariness and drudgery, you know ultimately that if you do your best, your work is going to be honored by the Lord. And that's something that all of us have to have in our minds because all of us at times are going to be working for a boss or a place that isn't so wonderful. Um, I remember as a new airline pilot, living in difficult conditions, I made $500 every two weeks, 14-hour days. I remember flying in ice, middle of the night, Houghton, Michigan, three inches of snow per hour. A guy that's next to me is sick, and he looks at me and he says, well, we can't go around, we got too much ice meaning you got to make this approach. And um, I remember there's times where I thought, wow, I <laughs> don't know if I really signed up for this much excitement, right? But the point is you do your work the best you can because ultimately you're doing your work not for human beings, but you're doing your work for the Lord. That's a biblical idea. Number two, take care of your family. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5.8. This is something we learned when we were in the pastoral epistles that we as believers are to be those who take care of our own family. And Paul said this not only because it's morally right, but because it also lifts the burden off the church who would otherwise have to take care of the individual that the, the genetic biological family fails to. Notice here 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, as Paul says that, he is not repudiating those who, for no fault of their own, can't do it because of some physical problem. That's not the point. The point is those who refuse to work in order to take care of their family. He says that that's worse than being an unbeliever. It's equal to being an unbeliever. Okay, so that, that's bad. We have to take care of our family. Um, you talk about a, a passage that isn't taught often in many of the churches where you have no fathers at all and you have nothing but welfare checks, that would be a good one to maybe read up on. Some of these churches that know everyone's on the welfare check, well, if anyone doesn't provide for his own family, they're worse than the unbeliever. And number three, pay your taxes. Romans 13, 7, you don't have to turn to this, but I'll just read it to you. Render to all who is due... I'm sorry, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There we see that we are to pay our taxes. If we pay our taxes and what the government ordains and commands of us, then we don't have to look over our shoulder. Uh, Romans 13, 7. Now, as I say that, because we live in America, we can vote and we can argue for a lower tax rate which would probably be a, be a good idea. But nonetheless, we are to pay the taxes when the tax bill comes. The fourth issue that I want to lay out is that we work hard and often work is difficult now because of the curse, but the kingdom is coming. So you remember in Genesis chapter 3, let me read to you Genesis 3, verse 17 and 18. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. This is because of sin. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
Notice cursed is the ground and thorns and thistles does it produce. There's going to be great difficulty this side of glory in work, but it's going to get better. Revelation 22.3, turn to that if you would. Revelation 22.3, for all of you workers on just after Labor Day who are laboring in an intensive way, notice the great reward. Revelation 22.3, it says there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. The curse is going to be lifted. No longer will there be thorns and thistles and the curse on the land, and we'll be serving the Lord, the best boss anyone could have. But now we serve, even now, by people who live by faith, not by sight, as we're serving the Lord alone. Okay, let's um, talk about the next section. That's the New Testament discussion on dissension. I'm sorry. There we go. I knew I was hearing voices. Yeah. I know I could ask my wife this, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it just, as we were looking at Colossians and uh, the passage there where it says, uh, knowing that from the Lord we, you will receive the reward yeah. of the inheritance, Oops. I think sometimes uh, we're guilty of thinking that we will receive a reward because of our labors. And the reward that we receive is from God. It's God's commitment. And an inheritance you don't earn or deserve. Amen. And also, I'm just thinking of the curse. We sometimes think that having to work is a curse. And yet, Adam was called to labor before there was a curse. Amen. Well said. So, yes, work in and of itself is not the curse. The curse came because of sin. And the idea in Revelation 22 is that the curse is going to be removed. That labor, once again, will not be laced and tainted by the curse. Absolutely. And uh, you're, you're right on your previous point as well, that our inheritance isn't something that we earn. It's something that Christ earns for us. The reason we work is out of gratitude for the one who earned it. And our work is in response up to the faith that we have. In other words... By faith, I trust in Christ, therefore, I obey because of what he's done and because of the future glories and the future hope. I'm not working in order to attain that as if I'm earning it. I'm working out of gratitude for the one who freely gives it to me. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. A very helpful and important distinction, Tom. Very good. Um, well, with this little time we have left, let's go on to the next one if we can. We can get through some of this. And that's the New Testament on dissension. And remember, that was the last two teachings, teaching three and four of this section of Proverbs, talked about the problem of spreading dissension. Premise one is needless dissensions are sinful. And that's what's being prohibited. Sometimes dissensions are necessary. And that's category two here. Elders in the church must guard against dissensions in doctrine and deed. So the point is, sometimes if someone is teaching a false doctrine or they're living in a false way, their doctrine or their deed, they're going to create dissensions in the church. There's going to be division because other brothers and sisters will say, I can't go along with that. The dissension, the problem of dissension there isn't on the one who's holding to the truth in doctrine and deed. The problem of the dissension is the one who's violating God's word. That's what we see clearly 
in the scriptures. And so that's why we see, for example, in Romans 16, 17, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Okay, so notice here, they are urged to keep their eye on those who are causing dissensions. The term dissension there, dicostia, literally means to divide two groups of people, or I should say one group of people into two. Or you have two people, you're dividing them up. Why? You're doing it over false doctrine. Or it could be over your deeds. But your deeds don't line up with the doctrine that was taught in the scripture. That's the idea. Notice here, he says that you're to keep your eye on those. The definite article may mean that there was a group of teachers that Paul had in mind, but I think it's generic enough where it could apply to anyone. That the church itself has a responsibility to keep their eyes on those who have different doctrine and different deeds that are taught in the scriptures. Notice he says that they're contrary to the teaching which you learned. What are we to do? Notice we're to turn away from them. That's church discipline. That's the idea of shunning those who will not acquiesce to the doctrines of the church. We follow the procedures of Matthew 18. Remember in Matthew 18, you go to the person who's sinning alone. If they listen to you, you've won your brother or your sister. If they won't listen to you, bring a witness so that every fact may be established by two or three witnesses. If they won't listen to the witnesses in you, then you take it to the church. And if they won't listen to the church, they're to be treated as what? A tax gatherer. They are to be excluded. Uh, yes, Brian. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't that uh, tie in pretty well with what Bob was teaching in uh, exactly. Acts 20 and then into 2 Timothy? It's exactly right. In fact, I was going to mention that very passage. Um, Titus 3.11, let me bring, or Titus 3.10, let me bring up this passage. And the reason I want to give you this one is this is one where elders are given ammunition to handle the factious man. Notice it says reject a factious man after a first and second warning. This is something that elders can do. This was commanded of Titus, who was an elder. Remember, all elders are pastors. All pastors are elders. He was on the church at Crete, on the island of Crete. The idea of rejecting the factious man. Well, who's the factious man? The term factious literally is heretikos. It's the term for heretic. Now, the term heretikos originally meant to cause a division, to cause a schism, but it was directly related to false doctrine. My point in saying that, though, is it's not always false doctrine. It could be false deeds. Some years ago, we had people who they would shut the doors on other Christians as they're coming in because they thought they were too late. Or they said, well, we don't think women can pass out the, the, um, the elements at the table. And they started falsely binding people to what they were not bound to in the New Testament. Now, were they outright teaching a false doctrine saying, we deny the deity of Christ? No. But they were factious in that they were usurping Christ as the lawgiver coming up with their own demands that all their brothers and sisters had to jump through by the way they lived. And therefore, we had to say to them, you have to stop doing that because Christ is the lawgiver. He is the head of the church. It's not your rules, it's his. So in a sense, that is false teaching, right? But it was the way they were living. And so you can treat them as the factious person. If we ever have to correct the factious person, whether it's in doctrine and deed, we do it as Bob was showing us the last couple of times in Sunday school. We do it with gentleness. 
turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 2.24 through 25. 2 Timothy 2.24 through 25. Now, the bondservant here that Paul is referring to, of course, is the elder slash pastor. But again, in a sense, every Christian is deputized when the elder or the pastor isn't around, right? So every Christian, this is something that we can all glean from. Notice Paul says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Notice in verse 25, it is with gentleness that we are to correct those who are in opposition. Why? Because it's the word of God that matters. It's the word of God that changes people, and it's only by his spirit that the change happens. That's why he says, perhaps God may grant them repentance. Notice the term for grant, didomi. That's the same term that Jesus uses in Matthew 13, 11, when the disciples ask, hey, why is it that you speak to them in parables, but you tell us plainly what the parables mean? Jesus says, because to them it's not been given, didomi, granted the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven, but to you it has been didomi, given. So certainly some are given the ability to repent because no human being has the ability to repent on their own. And the way that should influence us as we go to correct other people is it really enhances the idea of gentleness. Because if God is responsible for granting it or not granting it, then I can't beat someone into submission no matter how great an orator I am, no matter how angry I get, I simply present the doctrine, the truth in love. And then God is responsible for the rest. Now, does that mean we're always dispassionate? No, I think we can be passionate, but we don't become mean or we don't become angry is the goal. That's the idea. So with that, what I want to do next week, because I didn't get to it here, I want to talk about, I think Norm raised a very good point last week, is that we should make the main things the main things. I want to wrestle with when should we engage in contending for the faith? What are the, what are the, what are the hills that we are going to die on? And Bob and I have, I think, rightly said that it's going to be on the solas of the Reformation because if you deny one of the solas of the Reformation, it is an attack on the person and work of Christ. Okay, but I also wanted, I want us to think of it this way as well. Think about the promises of God. Whether it's been Bob teaching for 40 years or Steve Gretsch teaching the congregation the promises of God, the promises of God are something that I think we can contend for and we should contend for. And I'll, I'll tell you kind of a, uh, in just a couple of minutes that I have left, kind of a paradigm that I've been thinking about Do you remember in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to explore this next week, Romans chapter 8, do you remember at the end of Romans 8, I'm going to get my my cursor stuck, I'm going to actually read it to you here. The end of Romans 8, remember this is where Paul had talked about those whom he justified, he also glorified, and at the end he talks about these great promises for the church. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the end of chapter 8. It's this great crescendo. Nothing can separate the people of God from the love of Christ. There's no created thing anywhere in the entire cosmos, including yourself. 
including yourself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can separate you. Immediately after Paul gives that high point in all of the scriptures, he has to answer the question, what about Israel? If it's true that God is faithful to his promise to us, what happened to Israel? Every scholar agrees that's the issue from Romans chapter 9 to 11. And so, in fact, let me just give you a sneak peek. Romans 9, verse 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That's the issue. If God isn't faithful to Israel and he failed there, well, then maybe he'll fail with our promises too, and we can't really trust that there's nothing in all of creation that will separate us from the love of God. So the argument crescendos, if you follow it, all the way into Romans eleven twenty six, where he says, all Israel will be saved. What is the proof that God is going to be faithful to the promises that he gives us? Well, that he's going to one day bring the restoration of Israel. Now, where is there a great divide today in the teaching of the church where there's great dissension? It's over whether or not there's going to be a restoration of Israel. What I'm claiming is, is that really a subsidiary doctrine? If for the Apostle Paul, that is the absolute proof that God will be faithful to our promises, well, then maybe that's a very important doctrine and that we should contend for it. And that, in fact, when it says that all Israel will be saved, it is not opaque, it is not obscure, it is very direct, as I'll be proving to you next week, and those who say differently are creating dissension. Amen. It's not those who say all Israel will be restored, therefore God is faithful, therefore he's going to be faithful to us, that are causing dissension. It is those who are saying, no, all Israel really isn't Israel there. So next week I'm going to develop this. Because I want you to think about when it comes to the promises of God, we should contend for them. And again, we do it just as Bob has been showing us in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. We do it with gentleness. Perhaps God may grant them repentance. I don't have to guess as to whether one is saved or not. That's the Lord's doing. But I'm going to contend earnestly for the promises. And that is not dissension. It is those who are contradicting the scriptures that are causing the dissension. And so that's the case I want to lay out for you next week. If you wouldn't mind, if you would please read... And if you could read Romans 9 through 11, that'd be great. But we're going to focus on Romans 11, specifically verses 24 through 28. And we'll be focusing on that next week. And I'll be making the case that, yes, we should be those who contend for the promises of God. And that is not creating dissension. So with that, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that we could gather together and learn your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at wisdom that comes from your scriptures, whether it's about oath-taking or developing a work ethic and doing all things as unto you, that you would help us to live lives that are pleasing to you for, the na- for your great name and for your glory. We pray for Pastor Bob today as he goes and preaches. We pray, Heavenly Father, you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we'd not simply be mere hearers of the word, that we'd be doers as well. All for the sake of your name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.